Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for uh, David Ferguson and for Whitney. I want to pray first for their marriage, Lord. Just pray that they are blessed and enjoying you. Pray that they are uh, readying to parent and uh, that you are just already shaping the little heart of a little boy, that uh, he will be a young man that will adore you. Lord, we are thankful for the journey that we're on with David and Whitney and with uh, Commerce Community Church. Lord, we just pray for their journey and pray for their worship and wonder in that community. Lord, we, we beg you to draw others who know you and need to be part of a Christ-adoring people and those who may not know you who need to be part of a Christ-adoring people in that community, that you will draw them to C3 and you'll draw them to other Christ, Christian churches in that community. Lord, I pray for David that he will be um, consistent. I pray that he will be daily in his walk, in his journey, in his study. I pray for his shepherding with his wife, that she will um, have a picture of what Christ is to the church, that um, their little boy will grow up in a home where he sees the gospel on display. Lord, I pray that C3 will see the gospel on display and how they love each other. And... Um, that you'll be blessed and honored and enjoyed through that. Lord, this morning, praying for this people, I pray that you will, um, for any of us that may have come to just get our church on, that you will uh, lead our hearts to repent from that, that we can see ourselves as sitting at your feet this morning as, a, as your people. Lord, I pray that you will speak in spite of me, that you will give us an attentiveness and give me a clarity with your message for this people. Lord, I pray this church this morning will be readying for Easter to celebrate an especially empty tomb. I pray this morning will be God-honoring. In Christ's precious, holy, perfect name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Turn to Exodus chapter 32. you're turning there, let me share with you what we're doing today. I want you going to Exodus chapter 32, but let me share a brief passage from John chapter 1 verse 18, and then I'll kind of explain what we're doing. John chapter 1 is sort of like a map, or excuse me, it's sort of like a legend to a map, sort of like a table of contents for the rest of the book of John. We're coming back to John. This is a sermon where we're going to take just a Sunday only, at least this Sunday, a step away from John, and we're going to consider what's sort of developing in John. We've read the passage enough times where you know that Jesus is encouraging those who are following him to not let their hearts be troubled. Really, it's commandment, don't remain troubled, don't stay troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He shares with them, in my Father's house are many rooms. I've got room for you. And then he develops this picture that we've been going these last few weeks, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then there's this conversation between he and Phil, Philip. I call him Phil because he's ordinary. He's just ordinary. Every time you see him, he's just the most ordinary dude. So we'll call him Ordinary Phil. This conversation between he and Ordinary Phil, where Ordinary Phil just says, Hey, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. You know, this whole dialogue sort of confusing to me. You know, Thomas is sort of confused. I'm sort of confused. I don't even really know where you're going. Will you just go ahead and show us the Father? And Jesus responds to him and says, Where you been, Phil? 
Have I walked with you so long that you hadn't recognized that if you see me, you see the Father? If you know me, you know the Father? And really, that's sort of a visual of this passage in John chapter 1, verse 18. Remember, we're going to the legend now where John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What he's saying there, it's sort of like the table of contents where you're looking over and it's going to take you to John chapter 14 where we are, where he's having this conversation with ordinary Phil. And he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This passage, no one has ever seen God, the only God, this is speaking of Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You could translate that. He has explained him. I I preach expositorily, exegetically, exposing verse by verse that word could also, this could also be translated. The son has exegeted the father. He has exposed and explained the father. What we're going to do these next few weeks, today we're going to go to Exodus chapter 32, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Well, I won't explain why. We're just going to launch off into it. But you'll see some similarities, and I'll bring those out of why we're going to Exodus chapter 32. But let me give you kind of a Bird's eye view of where we're going these next few weeks. And you'll understand why I even started in John this morning. First of all, we're going to go to Exodus because there's another guy that asked to see the Father. Exodus chapter 34, there's somebody else that's familiar to us that says, just show me your glory. So we're going to go here. We're going to bathe in this story, this three-chapter long story in Exodus as just sort of a kind of readying us for Easter. It's coming up here in a few weeks. Next Sunday, we're going to have a membership renewal out at Grand Park on the north side of town. We're going to have a very short sermonette. And that's really because we're going to have no child care. It's going to be families. I mean, from the tiniest among us. Wank, wan, crying, goo-gooing, everybody. All of us there as families. We just want to be there all together. And we're going to recommit to each other, recommit to the Lord to be part of each other, members of one another. And uh, we're going to have an extended time of worship and song. And um, I encourage you, as part of that, to bring a picnic lunch and bring enough for your family and then maybe enough for another family or another few people, not another family. But in case somebody shows up without food, that everybody will have enough to eat. So we'll do that next Sunday. It's going to be a good time. The Sunday after that is actually a Sunday where we're going to recognize some new deacons. And we're going to dedicate the morning to that time of exposing what a deacon is Some of you are deacons in the making and you don't know it. Some of you may be deacons unrecognized and you'll be recognized on that morning. And then some of you who are deacons may need to be stirred up by way of reminder of what what it means to be a deacon. So we're going to spend that time together on that Sunday. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to come back to John 14 and I'm going to expose that in its context. That the son exegetes the father and exposes and explains the father. That Sunday and the Sunday after are going to be some pretty important Sundays. So we'll look forward to that together. Next week also, I'll just let you know in advance, we're going to have the Lord's Supper together while we're at Grand Park. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Excuse me, Exodus chapter 32. Where did I get 20? Exodus chapter 32. Let me give you a little bit of background before we climb into this three-chapter long story. I want you to understand where it sits in the redemptive story. Uh, Creation's way back in the beginning Shortly, well, not shortly, a while after that, there's a man named Abraham that God calls out. He tells him to go to a land that he will show him. He's going to make a great nation of Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. He furthers that covenant, renews that covenant 
or recommunicates that covenant to his son Isaac and then to Jacob. You may remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the covenant is renewed through or continued through Jacob, not through Esau. Esau, you might remember the story. He's the red hairy dude, um, the suit maker, the hunter. Looks a lot like Clint Stevens. Just hairy and red and burly. Clint. But um, the line doesn't continue through Esau. It continues through Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, one of which was a guy named Joseph. You might have connected that dot before, but Joseph is the one that through a series of really heartbreaking events ends up in Egypt. And you see God's hand all over that. You see a beautiful picture of concurrence. What you meant for evil, brothers, God meant for good. That in the same event that all things can work together for good that those who love him, and he ends up in Egypt in a time of famine where everyone would have perished had he not found himself there. So this family, Jacob's family, ends up in Egypt, and there in the fiery furnace of Egypt, 400 years in Egypt, a good portion of that being in slavery to Egypt, a nation is born. A nation that's quite prolific. In fact, they fulfill Abraham's promise that you'll be as numerous as the stars and the sand, and they are numbered like ants by the time this 400 years ends. And God, at that point, calls Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And then by mighty acts of judgment, you probably remember the story of the plagues. By mighty acts of judgment, there's this thematic reality where God wants them to know that he is the Lord. I'm doing this. I'm doing these plagues. I'm doing this Pharaoh. I'm doing this Israel so that you may know that I am the Lord. That matters to God. He doesn't want to be assumed. He doesn't ever want to be, oh, that's foundational. We got that. He wants them to know that he is the Lord. And then after the, you may remember the last plague is the Passover, really kind of the crescendo of the plagues where the firstborn of Egypt dies. And then at midnight, God leads his people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. We don't know if it's hours or days later. And then from there, they're led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke or a pillar of cloud by day to Mount Sinai. They find themselves at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And then in Exodus chapter 20, they get the Ten Commandments. Kind of helping you get a bird's eye view of how this thing's unfolding. The Ten Commandments, first five being sort of uh, vertical. The next five being sort of horizontal in character. And then in the chapters after that, he communicates the law to Moses. Then he communicates some instructions on the design of the tabernacle, of how it's supposed to be laid out. He gives them some instructions on worship, what worship is supposed to look like. He gives them instructions on how to live together. And then he ends these instructions just before we pick up in chapter 32 with instructions on the Sabbath. And it's really pretty cool how this whole thing unfolds. It's sort of like a whole new creation week. It begins with him giving birth to a new people, creating a new people, calling them out of the fiery furnace of Egypt, breathing life into this people that once were not. He delivers and creates sort of a new Adam in a nation called Israel. He gives them specific instructions on the tabernacle, which is sort of like the garden. If you've engaged the tabernacle and the layout of it, many of the fixtures point to sort of a garden, Eden-like environment. He gives them the, the, the law, which is a more detailed explanation, not a detailed explanation, but a more 
thorough commandments of the Adam and Eve version where don't eat from that tree. And then that week ends or that period ends with Sabbaths and Sabbath instructions is sort of like the end of creation week. And then if you know what happened at the end of creation week, then you'll find this especially appropriate where we're picking up in chapter 32 because what comes next? The fall. So that's where we pick up in chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Now, let me just tell you right up front, there's lots of rabbit trails in these three chapters. And what I'll do with the rabbit trails, I'm just going to mention them. Because there's really, in these three chapters, there's three important things I want you to learn about Jesus. And since we're not fact collectors, we're truth enjoyers. As we are moving into Easter, we can enjoy these three truths about Jesus from this story over here in Exodus chapter 32. But I will at least acknowledge the rabbit trails. And this is the first rabbit trail while our nation might be governed democratically, and while we may appreciate that, the church and God's people are not governed democratically. This is what happens when God's people are governed democratically. Up, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. Imagine in your home like if something unfolded like that. Up, Dad, make for us dinner. Something's out of sorts there, right? Something's not sitting quite right. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They're troubled that this man that led them out of Egypt is nowhere to be found. Really, they know where he is. He's on the mountaintop. He's spending time with the Lord. There's another brief rabbit trail. I want to encourage you. There's, I feel like I let people down so often where people need to speak to me. But really... I'm on the mountaintop, and it's not that I don't care about you. It's just that I'm trying to get something from the Lord, so I got something to give you this morning. That's why we have three other elders. That's why we have a staff. That's why we have other people that you can engage. So please, again, it's a rabbit trail. Understand that God's leadership needs to step away to the mountaintop or they got nothing to offer you. The pastoral ministry is not a chaplain ministry. Pastoral ministry is a ministry where you have a word from the Lord week by week that's leading people on a journey. And I'm thankful for the chaplain role that many of the other elders can serve in those times where I'm on a mountaintop or where they may be on a mountaintop and I can serve. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, what this was, it wasn't like a solid piece of gold. What they did with these graven images is essentially what's being made here is it was a wooden frame, and they melted the gold, and they sort of poured it around this thing, and they hammered it out, and they brazen grazed it, and they created this, this, this oxen, little baby oxen calf-like figure. And they said, the people said, after this golden calf is created, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now pay attention. I mean, it's days old that he's led them out of Egypt. It's days old that they would have heard the, whisp, the wind of the, of the Lord overhead at midnight 
as he's taking the firstborn of Egypt, as he's looking on thresholds, there's blood. I'm not taking that one. There's blood, not taking that one. Oh, there's no blood there. I'm taking the firstborn. Where they're hearing the wind and the cries and the wails of Egypt as they look and see their firstborn dead in their beds and cribs. It's days old since they've crossed the Red Sea on dry, crackling ground. It's hours old since they saw Sinai quake. And yet here they are making a golden calf saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, the acting leadership, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. They are eager eager to run into sin. They rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, the same things that they had given the the Lord. They're given to a golden calf. And the people sat down to eat and they sat down to drink and they rose up to play. Isn't that appropriate? They rose up to play. Ha, ha, ha. Isn't that golden calf something? Pass me another drumstick. Ha, ha, ha. Let's dance together. I'll tell you what this looks like. It looks like what it is. It looks like whoredom. When the bride of Yahweh is whoring with a golden calf. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. See, Moses has no idea. Moses is off with the Lord. He has no idea what his people are doing. He's getting this message from the Lord. But God knows what's going on down at the bottom of the mountain. He says, go down there for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. You hear him disowning them already? I thought God brought them out. Moses is going, "Uh uh-oh. He's saying the people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Stiff necks means they they are obstinate. Over in the book of Acts, that word is imported in there and used again where Stephen, just before he was stoned, he accused his stoners of being stiff necked as well. And he said, you are not walking with the Holy Spirit. You are not circumcised in the heart or the ears. It means that you're never cut by the exposition of the word. You're never cut by the Holy Spirit. It just comes and goes and just runs right on by you. Just whoosh. Says, you're a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, this is still God speaking, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them. That's what his wrath does. That I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. So it goes from being this prolific, ant-like population of people that are the covenant people to now being narrowed down to just Moses. Just you, Moses. But 
Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought up out of... He puts it back on God. You brought them up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Now he appeals to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember Abraham, God? Remember Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. You know, what's interesting to me is I wonder if Moses really had any idea what was going on down the hill at this point. He's probably thinking to himself, it can't be that bad. And then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on tablets. That's the same word that's used in this Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment. You shall have no graven images for yourself. You don't make graven images. God makes the graven thing, and that is the Word. And he engraves it with his own mighty hand. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, no. It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He must have thought, man, it's far worse than I imagined it. And then without yet speaking to anybody, at least recorded right here, we don't know that he said a word to anyone. He takes the calf that they had made and he burns it with fire. Just imagine him coming down the mountain. He's got these big stone tablets with the law written on them. He drops them. Everybody's watching him. They're in the middle of playing. They got a drumstick hanging out of their mouth and they look up and there's Moses. Uh Uh-oh. He drops the stone tablets, and then he walks over, and he takes this thing that they're dancing around like a bunch of hooligans. He throws it in the fire until, that, until all that gold melts off of it. And then he takes it out of it. Still hadn't talked to anybody. And he crushes it. He beats it into a fine powder. What did he use to do that? I don't know. How do you beat something that's golden into a fine powder? I don't know. you got to be pretty angry. Did he use his staff? Did he use his foot? Did he use his elbow? How did he do it? He ground it into a fine powder, and then he's walking around grabbing Israelites. Come here. He pours it in the water. He says, come here, drink this. Moses is hacked. A little tangent. No, you ain't heard the tangent yet. The tangent is your leadership will be hacked at you sometimes. But Moses was at the same time the most humble man on the face of the earth. You can be humble and be hacked at your people. You can do that lovingly and do it urgently. Come here and drink this powder. You should be ashamed of what you're doing. There are times where that's appropriate from God's leadership. 
Come here and drink this. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and he ground it into powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. Still hadn't spoken yet. And Moses said to Aaron, now he speaks. Come here, Aaron. He says, what did this people do to you that you brought such great sin upon them? You must have been trembling. And Aaron said, oh, Moses, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. Aaron's such a pansy. He blames it on the people. You know how they're stiff-necked, Moses? They made me do it, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and pop, out came this calf. <laughs> do you hear how lame that is? <laughs> what had happened was, Moses... I threw it in the fire and turned around, and there it was. It was amazing. You should have been here. I'm sure Moses was just saying, right. Right, Aaron. I'm sure. When Moses saw that all the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, just running to the world, whoring to the, to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp, and he said, a lot like Joshua said, choose you this day whom you'll serve. He said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Remember that tangent I just talked about? Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. Those are the priests. The picture of the pansy priest is not a biblical picture. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses says, today you've been ordained. Speaking to those Levites, you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his own son. They must have taken their own boys. Each one at the cost of his own son and of his own brother. Remember the sermon a while back, the covenant's thicker than blood? It's a great picture of it right here. So that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. A blessing of being used as an instrument of judgment with your bloody swords. And the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your gold making, gold dancing, playing around the fire sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, whew, this people has sinned a great sin, God. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You hear what he just said? If not, if you won't forgive them, then blot me out of your book. 
And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And here's how he's going to do it. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Let me bring out a few details about this chapter before we move on to chapter 33. There's going to be one important truth from each chapter. And I want you to get all three of them, not as fact collectors, but as truth enjoyers. Let me just kind of bring out the details. There's a newly created people that sin against the God who made them a nation. The God that gave them breath. There's a picture of the fall right here. They broke the second commandment by creating and graven image. And really what they created is they created an image that would replace Moses and God. Because Moses was gone. Where's my chaplain? Moses was gone. And God, the best we got from God was this pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Give us something we can see and touch and get our hands around. They wanted something seeable and touchable. They were medicating their concern over where's Moses with stuff. Is that, is that hitting you? They were medicating with their concern, their concern with stuff. And what I want you to see here that's in opposition, first of all, there's a graven image made by man. This little calf is made by man. And this is forming a new day-old religion that's based on sight. I can see this shiny thing and I can touch it. And the irony is when you make an image of something, that all you're doing is creating something that you already know. Those of you who just want to be part of a church and want to be part of a journey where, oh yeah, I already know that. Okay, cool. And you're never confronted with something new that causes you to repent from what you have thought? I don't know if you're working through the Bible. That's part of the journey. Because the contrast here is that God, is, is, he creates graven words on stone. And that's made by God. And this religion, this true faith in Yahweh is based on words where you are constantly challenged to change what you know and to rethink and to repent from what you thought you knew. A religion based on sight. This is just a reflection of stuff we already know. Contrasted with a religion based on words that forms and challenges you, forms a whole new way of thinking, a whole renewal of your mind. And whole repentance from the way you have thought. So the question is, is it Jesus and his words that lead you? Or is it an object of your own making that leads you? Is it something that you like to see and touch that's containable and measurable that is leading you on this journey? Or is it Jesus' words? One of the beauties of this chapter is that he provides an early picture of atonement. Atonement is a payment for sin. The first picture that we have of that is when Adam and Eve sinned. You may know or remember what God did. God killed a critter and he took the skin from that animal. That was the first death. He took the skin from that animal and he covered their nakedness or their shame or slash their guilt. It's a great picture of the covering of sin. That was the first time 
We get a picture right here where 3,000 are killed by the priests. They become a sacrifice. And then we don't know how many were killed by a plague. It's undisclosed. We don't know how many died by the plague. And what they were doing is they were atoning for the sins of the people. And what I want you to see before I even engage the first really important thing about Jesus, I want you to see that sin has serious consequences. And the result here was a bloody, gruesome scene. If you could climb into this story and imagine being an Israelite daddy that somehow survived the, the sword, somehow survived the plague, but you lost your brother, you lost your wife, and you lost all your kids to the plague. Would this be hitting you? Would the gravity of sin be hitting you? I fear that we're so far removed that we can't really engage what's taking place here. we got to climb into this story and become a Jew just for a day. And imagine what this must have been like. But here's the first really important thing about Jesus. Moses intercedes and he offers himself up. Remember what he said? Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. But here's what happens. God does not accept him as a substitute. While he was a great man, our Bible tells us he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. While he was a great man, he was not unblemished. <laughs> he wasn't perfect. It took something in someone else. Flip over. Keep your hand in Exodus chapter 33 and flip over to 1 Peter 3.18. I want you to see this. I'll give you a minute to find it because I want you to connect this dot. Three important things about Jesus. This is the first one. While God did not accept Moses offering himself as a replacement, blot me out of the book. While he did not accept that, he has accepted our Lord's sacrifice. Listen to this passage, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ suffered once for sins. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. See, God did accept his sacrifice. See, God did accept Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our fire-dancing, gold-making, hooligan-playing. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. Go back to Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus 33. Let's pick back up. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Remember, he's still pointing to you, these are your people, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But you know what, Moses? I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked, obstinate, uncut, uncircumcised in the heart, short memory people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. This would be like saying, Moses, this tabernacle I told you to build, don't bother. This tabernacle was the, the dwelling place of God with man. Don't bother. You won't need it. Because while I'm going to clear the way for you, 
I'm not going with you. That's essentially what he's saying here in the gravity of that, the weight of that hit that people, and they recognize it as a disastrous word. They didn't put on their ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now jump down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you've not told me, or you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, God, that this nation is your people. You hear Moses putting it back on God? I'm going to remind you, God, this is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He's mediating and interceding for the people, a bunch of hooligans. He says, for how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He's begging for God to not bail on the people. God's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant just with you, Moses. I'm done with them. And Moses is interceding and saying, please don't bail on this people. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God tells them to move out at the beginning of this chapter and he announces the bad news that he won't be going with them and that is disastrous. And then in verses 12 through 16, Moses intercedes again, yet again, and turned God's heart. He appeals to God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he binds himself to the people. He says, don't, don't separate me from them. I want to stick with them. And it's like saying to them, if I go, God... They must go with me, please. He intercedes for these people, these undeserving hooligans. And he finds favor in God's sight. Here's the second really important thing I want you to know about Jesus. Moses serves as a type of Christ in this story. If you haven't recognized, if he gotten, hadn't gotten familiar to you already, then you need to know that he serves as a type of Christ. And this story shows us our condition. We're a bunch of gold-making, calf-dancing hooligans. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. If you look at these guys and say, man, how could they do that? Guess what? You do it. It may not be as obvious. Do you medicate with stuff when you ought to be going to God? Man, we're a bunch of whores also. The story shows us our condition. We're driven by sight just show me something. Let me see something. And this story also shows God's work and it shows his wrath. But then it shows us someone who stands out as different. And in this story, the one who's really different is Moses. Moses is clearly different from the rest in that he actually asked to be a substitute. For a bunch of hooligans, he asked God not to make a covenant with him only, 
but with his people. He has to become their sacrificial substitute. He has to be blotted out of the book on behalf of the people. He intercedes on behalf of the undeserving. I'm climbing back into this story trying to be a Jewish dude. Asaph, that's a good Jewish name. Let's say me and, Ace, me and my wife, Asaph and Esther. And we're looking around at our kids, little Benjamin, Benjamin and Jacob. And we're realizing that most of our friends and family have been decimated either by the sword or by plague. And we're realizing what Moses is doing for us. He's interceding on behalf of us. And we're considering what would happen to us if God does not go with us. And we're going, go Moses. Please. Intercede. Mediate. And Moses did a great job of that. And he was a special guy in this story. But what I want to show you about Jesus, I've got to show you first about Moses. Turn to, turn to Numbers chapter 11. You've got to see this first. Moses was an amazing mediator, an amazing intercessor in this story. But listen to this, Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. This is later on in the journey. Moses is still leading the people. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Can you imagine being in an environment where you're grumbling against God and then your neighbors, their house just whoosh, becomes, you look over there and it's just like embers? That's what's going on here. Chunks, whole chunks of the camp catch on fire. God is so hacked. And then the people cried out to Moses, oh man, this is no good. That fire was kind of close. <laughs> I liked my neighbors. And Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. There he is interceding again. So the name of that place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now watch Moses right here. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving you're that stiff-necked, obstinate people. And the people of Israel also wept again, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. It was so good. It was like whiskers. Catfish. What's the name of that joint over there? Catfish whiskers. Oh, whiskers. It was so good. It was all you could eat. We had cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. We've had manna kebabs. We've had manna soup. We've had manna souffle. We're just tired of manna, Moses. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Now watch Moses. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses now is displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? You hear what's changed? He was saying, lay it all on me. I'll take it all. And now on into the journey, he's saying, why have you put this sorry bunch of people on me? 
He says, did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give your fathers? They're a bunch of stiff-necked, obstinate babies. Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and they say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, just go ahead and kill me. Kill me at once. I don't mean tomorrow. I mean right now. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses is so done with them. Moses is so tuckered out. Moses is like an amazing intercessor. He's an amazing go-between for the people. But right now, at this point on into the journey, he's so done with them. This one I want to show you about Christ is so awesome. Write this passage down. I don't want to give you time to turn there. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Consequently, he, this is speaking of our Lord, that we worship, not collect facts on, but our Lord that we worship, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen, since he always lives to make intercession for them. <laughs> he lives for it. He doesn't get tuckered out. Is that good news? You know, as awesome as Moses was, most humble man on the face of the earth, offered himself up, erased my name that you might save them. It's a real stud, man. Real patient, long-suffering. I mean, he's the kind of guy you look at and go, man, you're amazing. He didn't hold a candle to our Lord who is relentless, who lives to intercede for you. Man. Do you see that in Jesus? Sweetness. Go back to, Je to Exodus chapter 33. <laughs> We're going to continue on in verse 18. Hang in there. This third thing is coming up. Moses said, please show me your glory. This conversation's gone well. <laughs> you were saying you're people, and now you're saying you're going to renew the covenant. So, okay. I may go in and ask for the world. Same sort of thing that Philip asked. Can you just show us the Father? Moses says, please show us your glory. Show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face though, Moses. For man shall not see me and live. His white hot glory would just consume him. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'm going to stuff you in this little crack in the rock. And you better get up in there as close as you can get. You better like melt into it and become part of it. Because that's the only way you're going to survive. And I'm going to put my big mighty hand on top of you and protect you from my white hot glory. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Moses asked the same question that Phil asked. Show me your glory. Let me see the Father. And let's see what happens. In 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two stone tablets like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. It's going to be like a covenant mulligan. Bring some more stones. We'll have a do-over. 
No one shall come up with you. Not, not your partner, not Joshua. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two stone tablets like the first. And he rose early in the morning and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two stone tablets. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed these words. He said, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. I want you to appreciate that God in his grace renews the covenant right here. And that's why he says, bring some more tablets with you. We're going to do this again. I'm going to grave them with my hand yet again. And then God passes by and he speaks his name. And it's a long name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving thousands but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. He passes before him and he communicates his name and he shows them yet right here, it's a visual of what we talked about earlier, that his is not a religion of sight because all he gets is a tiny little glimpse of his glory. He shows him that following Yahweh is a religion of of words. You want to see who I am, Moses? Here's who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He explains who he is. Let's pick it apart. He starts out by saying Yahweh, Yahweh. It's a picture of intimacy. Like when he said Samuel, Samuel. Or when he called Moses, Moses. It's a picture of an intimate time. This is an intimate conversation. It starts out with Yahweh, Yahweh, and then there's the word God. The God in the Hebrew is not Elohim, it's not El Shaddai, it's just El. And what that means is God of power. It could be translated Yahweh, Yahweh, God of power, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in steadfast faithfulness. We considered that just a few weeks ago. Abounding in steadfast truthfulness, that He's reliable. You reach out for him and he's there. He's consistent. Keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. And he's forgiving three things. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. I did a study on these words. Iniquity means guilt. Transgression means rebellion. And sin means missing the mark. He's forgiven the whole gamut. I mean, that covers everything. The first thing is just guilt. The second one is just in-your-face rebellion. And the third is sort of like a, oops, I messed up. Missing the mark. He's got it all covered. Doesn't this sound like the God that we know, the God that we enjoy? This sounds like an amazingly loving God. It sounds like a God that can and does forgive. Especially in light of just a couple chapters earlier where they're dancing around a fire like a bunch of hooligans worshiping a golden calf. Are you appreciating this statement in that backdrop? 
It's the kind of God that we'd want to run to. But it doesn't stop right there is the problem. It doesn't stop with us forgiving all those people, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin for thousands of generations. It goes on and says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It says he will by no means clear the guilty. The New American Standard says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I thought it just said that he's forgiving the guilty. I thought he was abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I thought he was one to keep steadfast love for a bunch of generations. I thought he was the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, the whole gamut. What's this about by no means clearing the guilty? How does that work? And what's this about visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children, or the, the fathers and their children and their children, children to the third and fourth generation? I thought he was this loving God that was going to just wink at all that. How does that work together? If you're paying attention, you're looking at it going, that is irreconcilable. That takes me to the third important reality about our Jesus. That there is only one way that these things that seem irreconcilable can be reconciled. There's only one way for this God who forgives. This God who by no means will clear the guilty. And that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is something or someone has to die to pay for sin. Our Bibles tell us that blood is the only detergent for sin. The book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Something has to die. And the first one that died was the critter in the garden that gave up his coat to make a new swimsuit or whatever Adam and Eve wore. The next real marker was the Passover lamb on that night of Passover where the firstborn of Egypt died in their cribs and became a sacrifice. And where that Passover lamb, that unblemished lamb, became a sacrifice. And in this story, it's the 3,000 who fell at the hands of the Levites and it's the undisclosed number of people that fell during the plague. What God does is he gives us 1,500 years. He gave them 1,500 years of this cumbersome daily sacrificial system of guilty worshipers leading unblemished lambs and doves and goats and grain to the tabernacle and temple to atone for their sins as replacements every single day. I'd have to live right next to the tabernacle. I'd have to have thousands in my flock. There goes Ben again. Ben Hameen. That's what I would be. There goes Ben Hameen. Judging off to the tabernacle again. Reality is that something has to pay for iniquity and transgression and sin. And he created a 1,500 year itch for something better. And then in the fullness of time, he sent his son that he would make the irreconcilable reconcilable. Only in his son would these things work. Where he forgives and then yet doesn't. Only in his son would these work. He would, our Lord would once and for all time earn God's favor and atone for man's sin so those who are in him could see and know and fellowship with a now satisfied living God. He reconciles that God can both forgive iniquity and transgression and sin 
and by no means clear the guilty. And the way he does that is that he became the guilty. He took the punishment that that fathers and children's and children's and children's children deserve. He bore that punishment. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see that? He's laid on him our iniquity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See this, Jesus makes the irreconcilable reconcilable. And one more very important passage. 1 John 4.10 said, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That unfamiliar word to so many Christians that should be just right on your fingertips and the tip of your tongue and the tip of your heart at every moment is a word that means wrath absorber. He became the wrath absorber for you if you're in him. That's the way he took this thing that's irreconcilable and he reconciled it. He became our punishment. He became the propitiation for our sins. The thing you got to appreciate in this name that God says, here's who I am, that you look at it, if you really study it, you go, that's not explainable. That's irreconcilable. And then you look at Jesus and you go, well, yeah, now it is explainable. He has indeed explained and exposited and exegeted the Father. <laughs> that makes total sense now. What you got to see here is that holy judgment and scandalous love are caught up in the same person and work of Jesus Christ. Holy judgment and scandalous love in the same hour. He is the only way to reconcile grace, mercy, and love with white hot holy wrath. He became the final offering and took the punishment of a bunch of fire-dancing, goal-worshipping hooligans. He bore the wrath of the guilty. He bought God's forgiveness for those who were in him. Three things this morning. He was and is the perfect, acceptable, atoning sacrifice. Moses was nice, but he wasn't acceptable. He relentlessly intercedes for the undeserving. He doesn't get tuckered out. It's relentless. And he reconciles a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin and at the same time by no means clears the guilty by becoming the guilty. So what do you do with this? If you're a fact collector, you just leave today. That was nifty. <laughs> that was neat. I've never seen that before, huh? What's, when's lunch? If you're a fact collector, you may not even do that, actually. You may, the, your fact that you're focusing on, may, what's for lunch? If you're a fact collector, you will leave this on the table. You'll leave this in the sanctuary. You'll leave this in your Bible and not engage it between Sundays. 
But if you're a truth enjoyer, then as you sit as families, you will enjoy that he's relentlessly interceding for you and for your shepherds, for you and for your wives and for your children. That'll be a conversation over the dinner table. That's right. That's called worship. That's not weird. That's called worship. When shepherds on Thursday at dinner say, hey, man, I understand you guys were kids, that you guys were bad at school today. Man, I understand that you just totally thumbed your nose at your teacher. There are going to be consequences for that sin. But aren't you enjoying, kids, that we have one who relentlessly intercedes on behalf of you? Aren't you enjoying that, kids? Are you connecting that dot? Are you going to enjoy that you can't be good enough and even the most humble man on the face of the earth couldn't be good enough to act as a substitutionary atonement sacrifice that only Jesus could? Are you going to enjoy that on Tuesday? Are you going to enjoy that he absorbs the wrath that we're due? That he perfectly satisfies the wrath of a righteous, holy God? Are you going to let that creep into Monday and Thursday? Because if you do, that's called worship. I'm begging you to let it creep in. In fact, I'm urging you to escort it in. I'm urging you shepherds and moms who are cheering for those shepherds. Are those single moms who are acting as the shepherds? Are you singles who are sitting with others having dinner at CC's or wherever? Man, can you believe that he relentlessly intercedes for us? When you have those conversations, that's called worship. Because we're not fact collectors, we're truth enjoyers. Let's get ready for Easter together by enjoying these truths about Christ. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a time of worship and song in response to what's been exposed this morning. Let me pray. Y'all don't fiddle. Y'all don't move around yet. Let's pray. God, I pray that by some amazing work of the Holy Spirit that these realities about our Jesus have hit our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray with everything in me that these realities will find the Tuesday dinner table and the Thursday cubicle in the Saturday backyard. Lord, I pray for shepherds who have never said a single thing about God in the doors of their home, that today, that, that they walk away with a resolve and a burden for engaging their families with these realities. Lord, please guard us from ever being fact collectors and work in us this worship that engages these realities and prepare us for a special time of worship. Here in these next few weeks as we consider how empty and vacant that tomb is and how finished that work is. Lord, I pray that the Spirit will be busy working in the hearts of a bunch of ordinary fills. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship.